Good morning. Let me say a prayer for us. Dear Father, we love you. We trust you. We are so thankful for what an incredibly good God that you are. We are thankful that you are a God we can turn to and count on again and again and again. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen our minds, give us the um, faith that we need to do life well with you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week I had a procedure done where I had to swallow a capsule with a camera in it, and it took pictures of my inside as it worked its way through my body, which is super gross and cool all at the same time. Um, I had to wear this, like, fanny pack, like, strap around my waist, and then I had this, like, box that slung over that, like, recorded all of the data. And right before they, like, locked it in, they showed it a, me a picture, like it was snapping pictures, and I could actually see where it already was. It was gross and cool all at the same time. But it got to show the doctor like what was going on inside of me that they couldn't see any other way. So they do other tests to help you see other parts, but there's this middle section where neither of the tests see. And so then you swallow this like, I'm pretty sure every sci-fi movie I've ever had has a picture of this like robot pill and you swallow it and it works its way through, takes pictures and it shows you the rest. Turns out there's nothing interesting in there for me to see. Everything was fine. But wouldn't it be cool if we had something like that? Again, sci-fi movies, right? There's like people driving the robot pill. But wouldn't it be cool if we had something like that to look into the rest of us, right? Like not just like how our digestive tract works, but like our hearts and our minds, the things inside of us that we can't see by looking at the outside, the things that live in our hearts and the things that live in our minds, the thoughts and the values that take up space there. Wouldn't it be cool if there's like a test you could run to like take pictures and pull it out and look at it and examining it? We'd probably be saying the same thing, gross and cool, all at the same time, right? Some things we would love to see and other things really, like, that probably doesn't need to come out anywhere other than in the dark recesses of where it's been. While there's no robot capsule pill that can show us these things, Paul does give us a way to evaluate our hearts and minds. And we started studying Colossians 3 together last week, and he encourages us to put our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ. And as we put our hearts and minds on Jesus Christ, it turns into tangible actions we can take every single day, ideas that help us live out our faith with Jesus Christ. It helps us process and root around in our hearts and mind and see what's in there that needs to come out and what's in there that needs to be put back in. This is what he says in Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, sky, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, forgive one another, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. All right, 
I love this because Paul gives us two really good chunks to kind of examine here. And we don't have a camera to go in and examine our inner selves, but we do have, when we say yes to doing life with Christ, a Holy Spirit that's at work in us, growing us, developing us, comforting us, challenging us. We don't become perfect overnight, right? Wouldn't that be lovely? But when we say yes to doing life with Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, we grow more and more aware of who we are and where we need to change. And we don't do the work alone. We have all the help and the strength we need through Jesus Christ. Because of the spirit that's at work in us, we have these incredible opportunities to live, but not just living for our own selfish desires or just living how the world tells us to live, but living in this new life, which we've been called to in Jesus Christ. And so there's kind of always this tension, like one way of doing life is very easy, right? It's very focused on myself, where the other one has a heart that's open to God and what he can do. We have a mind that's easy to focus on ourselves and ignore God and focus on what I want and what I need. And that is mine that gets filled with pride and anger and selfishness and arrogance and vanity and defensiveness. But we also have the ability to turn our minds to Christ and allow our thinking to be challenged and approach our life and relationships with humility and an openness to learn. We have these versions of ourselves, right? We all have the one mindset we know is the mindset that shouldn't be, and the other is the potential that we have to be. And the only way we grow and move from one to the other is the help of the Spirit. We have the parts of ourselves which are proud and selfish and defensive and destructive, <clears throat> and then the potential that we have to be which is changed by grace and hopeful, filled with life and peace. And Paul loves this language of old self and new self. He loves these comparisons and these contrasts. And there's parts of all of us that need to be challenged and changed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And then there's parts of us that need room and space to grow as we do life with him. We have old parts that need to go and the new parts that need to be practiced and cultivated. So we're going to break up. It's a lot of verses, but we're going to break it up into two chunks. The first chunk is what shouldn't be there, and then the other chunk is what should be there. So Paul loves, he, it, it, you have to be able to study language if you're studying Paul. He loves big words and big comparisons and big ideas, but he says there's things in us that he says literally need to be put to death. Literally what it actually translates to is deprived of power, destroy the strength of it, subdue it. And so he gives us this list, and it's interesting because there's, you know, all kinds of opinions and things that get driven into, but really at the core of it is a list that's driven by selfishness. It's a me-first mentality. What I want, how I feel, what I think I need that will make me happy. Now, it's so important because a lot of times we read verses like this and we're like, well, God hates sex in the human body, so not quite sure what that means. And it's not at all what it's saying. It's not any of those things. The body is a gift. The world that we live in is an incredible gift. These verses drive us to the heart of who we are. And when the drive to get these things has more power over me than anything else, when my identity comes from these things, it leads to an incredible selfishness. Selfishness that puts ourself above others. Selfishness looking for the easiest way out or that's constantly comparing ourselves to others, feeling better about ourselves as long as we are doing better than somebody else. 
So when he uses lists like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, what is that except the desire to feel something without giving anything in return, which is selfish? Greed. Greed is selfishly desiring more and more, and it's demanding, and it's never, ever grateful or appreciative. What is not selfishness that doesn't lead to anger and rage and malice and slander and mean words and lies, right? All of these things weave in together from a heart and mind that's solely focused on self. And as we get into lies and anger, it gets frustrated into how we act and how we treat one another. It's so interesting because the idea of being selfish, the Greek word for selfishness is actually like being contentious. Your bitterness about life, your anger, your selfishness leads you to being at conflict with people and wanting to fight with everybody around you. You're at conflict not because of them, but because of you. Our fears and our insecurities only fuel this, and we start arguing from a sense of being right rather than trying to get it right. We start arguing to protect and cover up what we feel insecure about in ourselves, and our anger that goes unchecked and unprocessed leads to wrath, which leads to vengeance and retribution, and all of these things start justifying things we shouldn't do. And it's so interesting, because the way that Paul shapes this, he says, it's idolatry. Now, normally we think of idolatry, right? Like you read the Old Testament and God says, don't have any idols before me. Like don't make those like fake little golden shrines that everybody else has and don't make these fake images of me. So why would Paul say that behaviors could become idolatry? And it's so interesting because what we talk about is the idea of sin is really at its core putting myself where only God deserves to be. So what happens is, if sin is putting myself where God deserves to be, salvation is God putting himself where I deserve to be. And that changes everything. When I'm putting myself as the selfish core of everything, what I'm saying is, what I want, what I think, what I need is more important than anything else, which leads to more selfishness, which is all a fluctuation of these examples that Paul gives us. But then if salvation is this thing that changes everything, Paul says we've put on these new selves. Our identity isn't any of these labels that the world has given us. And he uses the popular labels at the time, Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. And in Galatians, he says, woman, male, female. But what is most important? Christ is all and in all. Who we are is defined in Jesus Christ. And he says the old is gone, the new is here. He's saying this new life we have in Christ is built on different values, different qualities that help us live our very best life. The core of my life isn't about me. <laughs> I'm not just living life to say what's going to make me happy, what's going to make my life easiest, what's going to make sure I get what I want when I want it, right? It's no longer a life that's wrapped up in selfishness Instead, we've taken off the old clothes of selfishness and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Paul's saying the image of this new self, the goal of growing in our faith, is to do life in the kind of way that allows us to grow more and more like Jesus Christ. So that our character, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions will grow more and more into who he's called us to be. And here's the truth, it takes work. 
I don't say yes to following Jesus, and then the next day, I'm more like Jesus, right? I need the work of the Spirit in me, growing me, working in me, challenging me to be more and more who he's called me to be. We just did a big spring cleaning in our house. The girls had spring break, and we pulled out so much stuff. We donated boxes and boxes, threw away junk that was just garbage and broken. And if you've ever done a spring cleaning before, like the beauty of doing it is, it frees up space in your home, and your house feels lighter. When you get rid of all of this stuff, it's like, oh my gosh, like, ah, you take a deep breath, it's lighter. Okay, the same thing happens in our emotional selves and our spiritual selves when we root around and dig out the junk that doesn't help us and doesn't grow us and doesn't help us be the best version of ourselves, and it's just taking up space, it frees up so much of ourself to put the right things in. So Paul says, we all have to look at our life and say, we choose selfishness so many times, and in choosing selfishness, we've taken up all of the space where God deserves to be. But when we root around and we get rid of this and say, I'm a new person in Christ, I have a new identity that I claim, what gets to be there instead? And then Paul gives us this beautiful list. Look at verse 12. What should be there? He says, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul's saying if we're really God's kids, here's what it looks like. Here's, here's the things that we share, right? Like, it's not that we all have brown hair or blue eyes or a certain color of complexion. He said, instead, we have these values, these characters that we're growing into. And if we're holy and loved, how do we reflect that in our life? Now, I love this idea because we've been studying some of these things. Normally, when we hear the word holy, like in the context, like, you be holy because I'm holy, right? We think of holy as just doing lots of the right things. We think of it as being moral, right? But then you study in the Hebrew, when it talks about like the temple and the tabernacle and the things that were holy, what really the Hebrew for holy was to be set apart. In the tabernacle and the temple, there were things set apart for God, like a bowl. Now a bowl is a bowl, it's inanimate, right? It can't do right things or make moral choices, but because it was set apart for the use of God, it could be holy. So when we think about holy, it's not just doing enough of the right things or moral things, but it's being set apart for God. It's having a heart that's wholly dedicated to doing our life for God. And at its core, what it means to be holy is, who am I living for? Who is my aim to please in life? And when my identity's wrapped up in Jesus Christ, I'm trying to live in a way that wants to please the one who loves me most. So Paul gives us these values. As we are living out lives as kids, as God's chosen children, holy and loved, here are these qualities that should be growing up in us. And I think it's so important because anytime we think about like, okay, I follow Christ. I've said yes to being his guy, yes to being his girl. These are the things that should come to mind. What do people know when they look at me saying, if I say I'm a Christian, what should you see? Paul says, here, let me give you some of them. And he kind of uses this section two different ways. The first section is service qualities, right? Here are qualities that allow you to serve. And then uh, here are service qualities. Every one of these has a service mindset. 
And then the second section of them are qualities that allow you to practice these and serve well. That's confusing, but let me lay it out so it makes sense. Okay. He gives us these words. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Okay. So let's break these down just a little bit so they're more than just like innate words for us. Compassion. What is compassion? Compassion is having an awareness of other people's pain, distress, hurting, and having a heart that wants to do something about it. So when you're showing compassion, you see someone else going through something, and you're not just aware of their pain and struggle. You're not just sympathetic, like, oh, that stings. You really want to do something about it. You're moved to help. You're moved to have mercy and show kindness and do something, which is why kindness goes right along with compassion. Compassion is seeing somebody else's hurt or pain and wanting to help alleviate it. Kindness is the ability to help. It's that ability to serve, the, the helpful nature that says, I want to do something about this. Kindness is showing goodness in tangible ways. It, it's looking for ways to do good and sow goodness into the world and into the life of others. So compassion and kindness go together, but for these things to exist, we need humility. And humility isn't thinking less of your thinking less of yourself it's just thinking of yourself less right like it's not me saying I'm a terrible person I have to lay down on the ground it's just I need to stop thinking about myself so much thinking about me comes easy it happens as soon as I wake up and it happens when I go to bed but I need space in my life and in my heart and in my mind where it's not about me and practicing humility keeps us open to being teachable. It keeps us open to feedback. It frees us from pride and arrogance and saying, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Instead of us making everything about ourselves or the world revolves around what we want, we take ourselves out of the center. I'm a piece of it. God gave me this life, but I'm not the only piece. There's lots of other moving pieces around us. The more we choose humility, the more we have the ability to be gentle. And gentle is such a powerful characteristic in virtue. It's not the absence of strength, right? Sometimes it talks about meekness, and meek just sounds like a weak word, doesn't it? But it's not the absence of strength, but instead it's restrained strength. David told us it was the gentleness of God that made him strong. Gentleness is a restrained, quiet strength. It is, I don't have to overwhelm others with myself. I don't have to prove how strong I am or how smart I am or how great we are. We can restrain ourselves and respond in appropriate ways with gentleness. Gentleness shows up in your words and your actions and your responses and in your choices, which leads right into patience. Sometimes patience is what drives all of these things, right? I love thinking of patience as a service quality. I can serve people through my patience. I can serve people through practicing patience. And to be a patient person, it requires endurance, constancy, and I love the word forbearance. Like, forbearance is this long, enduring patience. When you read about the forbearance of God, it is like generation after generation after generation. God has been patience, patient with us. And patience gives us the ability to deal with difficult situations or difficult people without becoming angry. And that's kind of life, isn't it? There's so many difficult moments that come up and so many difficult situations or people, but we can deal with them if our mindset is set on service and patience so that we don't become angry. I've lost my patience and regretted it. 
I've lost my patience and gotten angry, and I've 100% had to apologize for saying things that weren't helpful. I've never regretted being patient. There's never one time that I've like, I'm gonna patient, I'm outpatient this, I'm gonna outpatient this, that I have regretted that choice. Because absolutely, people can be helped and changed by our patience, but they can be hurt and diminished by our anger and aggressive words, which is why patience is such a powerful service quality. So look at what Paul's saying. I am a better person when in my life, these are the qualities that I'm using to serve people around me. When I put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience, and we can almost think of it like a wardrobe, right? Like, what am I going to take out of my closet and put on today? How am I going to practice patience? Where's humility going to show up? What does my kindness go with today, right? Like, what outfit does it look good with? But to live with humility and gentleness, we have to see other people for who they are and not only make everything about me. We have to think of the people who are around us, who they are, what's going through, on with them. We watched this incredible idea in our life group, and it was the idea of we normally study things and we look at it from the inside out. Instead, I'm sorry, we look at it from the outside in. I have my perspective, and so when I look at other things, other people, other cultures, I'm using what I know to look at them instead of looking at them from the, outside, from the inside out. What's their perspective? What's it like to be where they are, live in their shoes, instead of imposing how I see things onto them? And that's what these service qualities require. Instead of me saying, everybody needs to be this way and everybody needs to do these things, we need to know people. You, to practice kindness and compassion and gentleness and patience, you can't do it from a distance. You gotta be up close and know people. And we need to say, every one of these are choices, right? Patience is a choice. I can choose to be patient. No matter how busy or frustrated I am, I can always choose patience. And all of these uh, practices, all of these qualities help put us in a position to serve other people. And what it requires is I've taken the focus off of myself, the selfishness, and I've put my eyes in the kind of way that they're open to see people around me. So Paul says these are service qualities, but then the second group that he gives us, these help us to serve, these help us to practice these well. What does he say? Bear with each other, forgive one another, forgive as the Lord forgive you. All over all of these put on love, which binds it together in perfect unity. Okay, so what he's saying is if I want to be patient, compassionate, kind, if I want to be gentle and humble, I got to have a spirit within me that's willing to bear with people. It's literally an image of bearing one another up, holding each other up, right? In a structure, there are load-bearing walls that can hold more of the um, weight of the building than anything else, and the rest of it leans on it. In the same way, we do life in the kind of way that we bear with one another. We hold each other up. We endure life together, and we're able to lean on each other in the kind of way that none of the walls come crashing down. This is our image of what it's supposed to look like in the church. This image of holding each other up where we can lean on each other, grow with each other, serve alongside each other, endure with each other, and fill in the gaps with, of life. I love D.A. Carson said, what binds us together, when we think about the church and being a follower of Jesus Christ, what binds us together, it's not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been loved by Jesus himself. 
They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. We've all been loved by Jesus, and it changes everything. The same Christ who gave his life for me gave his life for you, and that's what brings us together. We get through life so much better when we have people in life that we can do it with that hold us up and encourage and we can lean into each other. Sometimes you're the one encouraging. Other times you're the one being encouraged. Other times you need people to challenge you as you challenge them and reminding us of why it matters and why it's worth it. And because we're bearing with one another, we know we're doing the best we can. I love, I heard this phrase in a book that I was listening to. I'm doing the best I can with what I have at this moment, right? I I might be able to do better at another moment, but we're all doing the best we can. When we think about people that way, it really does change everything, right? We're able to give each other the benefit of the doubt and think the best of each other instead of assuming the worst. When we think the best of one another, we're able to do life in the kind of way that helps us move through difficulties, move through challenges while being more compassionate and kind. Paul says when we bear with one another, it helps us practice those qualities in the kind of way that helps us treat people better. But we also have to forgive one another because the inevitability of life is we hurt one another. Either we're trying to or accidentally we bump into each other. And if we can't forgive one another, it's hard to have meaningful relationships in life, which means we can't hold on to resentment. We can't hold on to anger. We can't hang on to that feeling of, I want to get back at you for making me feel bad, so I'm going to make you feel bad. And then it's this endless cycle of who's the one to blame in the end. We have to choose forgiveness. And it's one of these ideas that if you are going to do life with Christ at all and you really want to follow him, you just can't escape it. Jesus Christ died a victim of injustice, right? And instead of calling down curses and swearing at the people who were beating him and showing him brutality, he called down forgiveness. And that is who Christ is and shows us to be. Why? He could have called down curses. He could have called down armies and he could have done whatever he wanted. But that's not what he was teaching us. The gentleness of Christ was a restrained strength and in offering forgiveness a whole world has the ability to change. We forgive, not because it's easy. If you've ever had to forgive someone or you're working your way through it, it's hard and it's messy and it costs something. It costs you something. But because of Jesus Christ, the one who showed us what he was willing to pay, the cost he was willing to take that we might all be forgiven, we have this resource that allows us to practice forgiveness in a different way. Please hear, I know forgiveness is hard, but Christ is most glorified in us, not when we are resentful and angry and shouting at one another, or even just using how right we are to squash somebody else. Christ is most glorified in us when we practice forgiveness and mercy. Christ gave us a model, but he also knows why we need to offer forgiveness. We have no hope of healthy futures if we are constantly bitter and angry. Richard War said, What we do not consciously acknowledge will remain in control of us from within, festering and destroying us and those around us. There's no chance of growing into our best self when our hearts are filled with resentment and anger. 
It's why those come up on the words list to get rid of, because what's controlling me, right? What is controlling me and the choices I make? If it's resentment and anger, I do not get to grow into a healthy future because I cannot let go of the hurts of the past. Forgiveness isn't denying that something bad happened. Forgiveness isn't excusing bad or evil behavior. Forgiveness is simply saying, I am not going to allow this moment or what happened to define my life or future. Forgiveness is saying, I'm done giving control of my story to what somebody else has done. Forgiveness is trusting God and having faith that he's got it. I don't have to make other people pay because I believe in a God who is bigger and greater than that. And I also know this is where humility comes in. There are times I've messed up and I need to be forgiven. There are times I haven't gotten it right. And there are times that I've had to say I'm sorry. And if we're really going to do well, life well with each other, we have to accept we do mess up. But part of bearing with one another and humility and patience and kindness is we offer forgiveness to one another. I mess up, others mess up, but we serve each other by forgiving each other and giving one another another chance. And then he says, put on love, which binds all of this together in perfect unity. What holds all of this together? What molds all of these pieces and not just like a scrap pile of things is love. It's the one thing that we can practice and put on that never, ever, ever gets old and goes with us. I love how Andy Stanley described this. He said, Jesus knew exactly what to expect when he walked into Jerusalem before his death. He knew what the leaders and the Romans would do. He grew up knowing exactly what crucifixion was. He'd seen the dead bodies. He'd seen what they did to those who didn't follow along. And still he walked right into that city. And who of us could have done that? His love compelled him to face death head on. His great love for you and I walked him down a brutal and violent road, and he did it. He didn't hide from it. He didn't turn away from it. He walked right up to it because of his love. All that Christ gave was given out of love, freely and generously. And this is what Andy Stanley says. When we know Christ in this way, what we do is anytime we find ourselves in a situation that we don't know how to react or how to respond, we use the question, what does love require of me? In moments of difficulty, challenge, confusion, peer, fear, pain, frustration, anger, right? In all of these things that pop up in life, what does love require of me? And our example that we look to is Christ. It's the love of Jesus Christ that shows us compassion, how to find room for kindness, how to live with humility and patience. It's the love of Jesus Christ that gives us the courage and the freedom to choose forgiveness. Because love at its core is service. It's action-oriented. It's not about me. It's not how I feel. It's how I choose to act. And what we say is, if Christ loves me in this way, then out of everything that people see in me, if they say, I know, if I say I know Christ, people should see me living and acting in loving ways. So what we have to do next is look at our own lives, right? We have the Spirit helping us, examining our hearts and examining our minds. What's there that shouldn't be? What's not there that we need to spend more time practicing and focusing on? 
If I'm really trying to do life with Christ, what do people see when they look at my life? Do they see love, compassion, kindness, and humility? Or do they see selfishness, anger, and greed? Are the people closest to me better because I'm a person who loves Christ? The people who are around me, are they affected by my love or my selfishness? Do they benefit from my compassion or are they reeling from my anger? When we put it all together, doing life with Christ, it's not about proving how right we are. It's not about all the right words that we know or the rules that we follow. What it is at its core is, the more I know Christ, the more I become the kind of person that is loving. And my love demonstrates itself in service to others through compassion and kindness and gentleness, patience and humility. It gives me the ability to forgive. It gives me the ability to endure life by encouraging and holding others up and to practice love in service action oriented ways. If we're doing life with Christ, our relationships should be the better because of it, because of who he is and what he's doing in us. Dear Father, I pray that you would help us. I recognize that it isn't easy. It's always easier to be selfish than it is to be a servant. It's always easier to be greedy and angry than it is to be compassionate and forgiving. But I also know, Father, you do your best work in us when we practice these qualities. So I pray that you would help. I pray where I've gotten it wrong in the past that you would forgive me. I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage, the strength, the hope that we need to practice compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I pray where anger and resentment have been eating holes away in our hearts and in our minds, you would give us the strength to practice forgiveness and that we would be the most loving generation that has lived because of who you are and what you're doing in us. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name.